Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Ira Hughes and his family went through two and a half years of fighting pediatric cancer with their daughter before she passed away in 2017. It's not often I get to interview caregivers, and so I am really excited to have Ira with us today. Ira, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for dealing with the technical difficulties. (laughs) I really appreciate it. Um, Before I hit record, I was telling you that caregivers have a very special place in my heart and I really appreciate you coming on. Sometimes these are the toughest interviews for me to do. I just, I want to say up front, thank you again. Can you take us back to the very beginning and and what happened with your daughter? So Audrey's cancer, um, we had diagnosed when she was three, but she had medical problems um, from the day she was born. Uh, When she was born, actually, when she came out, she had a, a dimple at the base of her spinal cord. Like, and like the a doctors, dimple, like a little, uh, just like a little, a little spot where s- somehow, you know, when they're, they're flipping them over, they're doing the checks, measuring them, make sure they breathe all that stuff. He, he said, Hey, you know, there's, there's something here, you know, one in 10,000 chance she, she could have something to do with spina bifida. We just need to get a quick ultrasound. Uh, if you could just follow me down to the, the children's part of the hospital, we can get this done right now. Right. And after so, she was born, like right then. Yeah, literally we rolled out of the table um, down <laughs> to the ultrasounds. It turned out she did have uh, spina bifida occulta, which is, um, Spina bifida, that's basically the spinal cord is um, like kind of coming out of the spinal cord lining, mm-hmm. and but it's still inside of their body. And sometimes spina bifida, actually, they can fix it in utero where the spinal cord is actually coming out of their body. And so they fix that in utero before they come out so that that's not exposed. They said, okay, well, she has that and she has a tethered spinal cord, which meant the um, spinal cord itself was attached to the lining of the spinal cord area. And so that would need to be detached. Her spinal um, cord lining would need to be sewed back together. And that they would do that when she was nine pounds and nine weeks old. And so they said she needs to be both of those, right? And so right at nine weeks, we, we fought really hard to make sure she had gained enough weight. Uh, we were able to get her first surgery done. They said, you know, it'll be pretty easy surgery. We'll get in there. We'll do all the things. Um, they had two just amazing doctors. Uh, some of the experts in the Southwest and when it comes to neurology and neurosurgeons. And they had both of uh, the, the main doc and he had an assistant in there who also had 20, 30 years of neurosurgery. And neither of them had seen a spinal cord that looked like hers before. And it was like forked at the bottom, which they had never seen. And it was a color they'd never seen. And then there was, there was a small mass in that spinal cord, but they took a sample of that and it was benign. So no reason to cause more damage. And so they fixed everything up and Three years go by, everything's going great. She progressed well. We got her some physical therapy. Everything was looking like a normal kid. And then a little after she turned three, she started regressing in her potty training. And she had potty trained early. And we yeah. thought, you know, it's a three-year-old. She's just in the terrible threes and not wanting to get up from playing and, you know, wetting herself. And then she started to get frustrated. And so mm-hmm. we said, you know, maybe we need to go see the doc. So we went and had a conversation. And he moved up with her next MRI, which was checking that early surgery. She had an MRI about every six months at that point. So she had already had six or seven MRIs um, before she was 
diagnosed with cancer. And then when they did the the routine MRI to see what was going on, they saw the, the tumor. And then we did another one following up right behind that with contrast, and it pretty much was a guarantee that it was cancer. And the doc had seen cancer in his spinal cord. Obviously, none of us were happy, but he he's like, oh, we'll we'll get the CO2 laser, we'll blast it off. You know, it's it's only in that one spot. We should you know be as okay as we can be, and then we'll we'll figure out what we do from there. But when they went in, they found out that it wasn't the typical type of cancer, and they couldn't even identify it just by their you know with all of their years of looking at tumors, they they said they knew that it wasn't what they expected it to be. And so it would take a few more days for us to find out it was rhabdomyosarcoma. sarcoma. And rhabdomyosarcoma sarcoma is, it's not a typical cancer. It's still a rare cancer. So, you know, the, the whole statistic, one in 285 kids get cancer. And it, about one in 1,000 of those one in 285 kids get rhabdomyosarcoma. sarcoma. And of those kids, it's a soft tissue tumor that happens generally in, in weird places like eye sockets, genitals, um, just weird spots, bellies. And when our doctor found it in the spinal cord, they went to do some research. And to the research he found that he told us he could only find four documented cases that it had ever originated in the spinal cord before. And so- Was he expecting to find a solid tumor? Because I that's what I would think of. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then when it was that soft tissue, muscle tissue type tumor, it-, it it kind of, you know, kind of aligns with him finding that first stuff, right? The And then the, the issues that she had had, right? It was kind of like genetics were just off in that whole region. And so maybe there was some muscle tissue within there that the cancer was able to take root in and the body didn't know how to fight it. So it allowed it to multiply and become what cancer is. And so it had spread. Um, so he went in, they took it out, but it had already spread up into her upper spinal cord and then started to create some metastasis in her brain. We found out that she had rhabdomyosarcoma. She was stage four. And because of where it was, the four cases that he had found, there hadn't been any kid to live a year. We went and met with the uh, oncology team. They gave us the the rundown of all of the chemos that she would need over the next 54 weeks, the 58 weeks of aggressive chemo. And that's because it's stage four, you have to hit it with everything you have. Yeah. And so we did that. And then as we're looking over these um, these old medicines, right? Like, None of this is new technology. And we're looking over all the things they do, but then like they do this much on the page and then like this much of the page is all of the side effects that they cause, right? And like, I think six of the eight cause cancer. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really it's common for, you know, soft tissue tumor treatment to create, to give them leukemia. And it's, it's also very common for leukemia treatment to give them tumors. And, and that's the technology that we have to deal with today, which is, it's horrible. You know, it's 30 to 40 year old technology and, it, and it's still 30 to 40,000, 30 to $40,000 a treatment, you yeah. know, and over 54 weeks of chemotherapy, pretty much every week, unless her body couldn't take it, she was getting chemo. So wait, you did that for a year? For 58 weeks. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, is this before or after you started the clinical study or was it part uh, of so, it? No. So, um, so we did the, the original protocol. Okay. which was the standard stage four rhabdomyosarcoma protocol in, in hopes that it would cross the blood brain barrier, which was part of the issue as well as we didn't know the efficacy. And, and it turned out to be one of the, the problems is the, the chemo isn't designed to treat cancer in the spinal cord, but the treatment is designed to treat rhabdomyosarcoma, which is never in the spinal cord generally. So trying to get the efficacy that you want of that medicine in that area that you need it to kill the cancer cells is, is really hard. And 
um, the, the good news was is, is through the surgery and then the, um, I believe she did four weeks of radiation in Houston. I think we stayed, it was six weeks in Houston. We went down and we had to stay six weeks down in Houston um, for treatment. And then she got um, proton radiation down there because one of the options that had is there's, there's two different types of radiation. One is photon, which is more like a shotgun and it just kind of blasts everything. But when the doctor was telling us about that, he said that she would be deaf and blind oh. and also cause a lot of other issues if we were to go that direction. And we said, well, then that's a hard no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's about quality of life at this point, right? Where we want to prolong her life or try to save her life. But if that was the option of the two, the lesser of the evil to me is, is just to give her much quality of life for as long as she can um, versus the other. So we said no. And he said, she'll die. And we said, we understand that. Wow. Um, just so from context for people, so you live in Arizona, so now you've gone to Houston. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't got to Houston yet. It was okay. really, uh, it was really the decision factor right now. Right. Okay. So we told doc, absolutely not. And he goes, well, we're going to have to do this. And I'm like, over my dead body, we're gonna have to do this. So that's, that's not an option. Find something else. The hospital we had gone to had partnered with MD Anderson in Houston. And so he called the doc down there who happens to be one of the foremost experts on rhabdomyotomy sarcoma in the world. And wow. who originally was partnered also in the original treatment protocol decisions and said, Hey, you know, why don't you come down here for proton radiation, which is more like a laser. And then it actually only goes to the depth that you need the radiation. So there may be some IQ hit because you're radiating brain tissue. There may be some growth issues, but you're not going to have the blindness and the deafness like you would from the other. And we're like, okay, that is a fair compromise <laughs> and uh, something we're willing to say yes to, which. Then we had to get the insurance to agree, which is always the, the other difficult part, which they did. And we were able to go live in Houston for, I think we lived down there for somewhere between six and eight weeks. I can't recall. It's been a little while, but we stayed in the Ronald McDonald house the first time we went down there and got treatment, which in itself, it's, it's, it's quite the, a lot of kids, a lot going on. Uh, it was good to have like the stuff around you, but very small room for, for that amount of time. But it's great to be able to have that resource available for people like us that needed it at the time. Um, so yeah, so we traveled to Houston, we did that, and we came back and we finished our chemo protocol. And the last scan said the cancer was gone. So after 58 weeks of treatment, there was no visible sign of cancer. Wow. And is she so, is she four by now? I mean Yep, she's she's four going on five. Um, so we find out cancer's gone. We're cautiously optimistic, knowing that, you know, it's one of those cancers that Unless you get every single cell, it's going to come back. If you miss one, it's it's just going to grow back. It's a very aggressive growing cancer. We we have a good August, a good October. Um, she ends up getting invited out in actually September. She'd she'd already beat us. So August, September, October, and in September we went out. And she threw out the opening uh, pitch at Wrigley Field for the Cubs <laughs> for uh, Pediatric Cancer Awareness Day. That's awesome. Are you from Chicago? No, they actually they spring train down here. Okay, and Audrey had a way about her that anyone she ever met or met her instantly fell in love with her. She just had this charisma. The mascot definitely wasn't, uh, it wasn't immune to that. And so they were best buddies from the second they They met each other and uh, <laughs> Joe Madden, who was in charge of the Cubs baseball team at the time when they were doing spring training, he does an event every year called Respect Bald. And he would have his head shaved and then the players would get their head shaved and then they would donate money towards the local 
cancer hospital. Ooh, I just got chills. <laughs> so they had asked us, we were actually inpatient at the day that we were supposed to go. They'd ask us if we would come out and be a part of this and shave his head. So my daughter and son shaved Joe Madden's head and then other players' heads and was a part of it. And we actually, we had to have a, a, a interesting conversation with the hospital staff. We're like, hey, I know we're inpatient. I know our counts are up. I know we're able to go. I know we need to get chemo this evening. So we're going to check out for a little while. We're going to go do this event. We're going to check back in. We're going to get chemo. And uh, everyone was able to make that happen. And we were able to get Audrey to the event for just enough hours to shave the heads, catch a little baseball, and then get out. But during that time, she stole everyone's heart, uh, including Jay and Joe Madden. Um, Jay is Joe's wife and uh, Clark the Cub. And we had told Clark, hey, Audrey would love to see you more. And he came up to the suite. They were watching the game. And then they just hung out and had the best of time. And from then on, they were just best friends. Oh my God. That's so sweet. So, a great relationship. And I've gotten to know um, the man in the suit very well. <laughs> Since then, we're, we're, we're still good friends. Audrey and him would send videos back and forth. And that happened to be the year that she threw out the opening pitch. They won the World Series. Um, so there was a lot going on with that. So it's a, it was a great connection for us and the team. It was a good time in our lives. It was uh, a lot of, especially after she got cleared of cancer, when she threw out the opening pitch, it was you know, it was a time when we weren't fighting. We were just living together and we'd been through so much. And I think that people that um, are going through COVID right now are starting to get an idea of what it looks like to live with a family member or yourself that has cancer and that you can't go out. You can't go out of these things because your blood counts are down, your infections are high and you shelter in place way more than anyone will ever have to shelter in place in COVID hopefully. And, you know, there's, there's lots of things that are similar to the, our journey there. And then that was kind of like our first being able to be out again. It was the first times that Audrey counts were enough that we could go and enjoy ourselves, go on vacations and do stuff. Um, and then unfortunately she had a routine three month off treatment scan in November and we found out the cancer was back. Oh my goodness. What was her reaction? Because I feel like she was at an age where she really sort of understood what was going on and certainly it'd been going on for such a long time. So what was her understanding and reaction? She understood that she had cancer. Um, I don't think that, you know, she ever understood um, until pretty close to the end that it was life-threatening, that, that there would be a possibility that her life would be shorter than most, right? That she wouldn't get to grow up. Little kids are just the most amazing troopers <laughs> when it comes to fighting. And and she was a very positive mood kid. I mean. Minus what steroids would do to her attitude. Um, you know, roid rage is real, yeah. especially, you know, in a, in a three to five-year-old. It is, yeah. Um, you know, and, and outside of those moments, she was just a, a pleasurable kid. She was always fun. She always made people laugh, made us laugh. And, you know, I think that we all kind of try to keep that same demeanor through the entire fight, you know, getting through the the hard days with laughter. You know, just, just time together and, and making sure that we got every moment we could and knowing how many we'd have. So when the cancer comes back, you've done chemotherapy for over a year, you did mm -hmm. radiation. What was the next step? Treatments are limited at that point, right? Like you've, you've had your max of most of those chemos because we were stage four aggressive um, protocol. So it's not like they can give them more without causing more problems than they're worth, if it makes any sense, if it's quantifiable, oh, yeah. even there was another protocol that generally extends life. 
And so we went on to that protocol in hopes that we would start to see it go away. And it definitely prolonged things, but it was rapidly showing that the chemo and was not slowing the overall growth of the cancer. And our doctor here in Arizona at the time chose to no longer give us treatment, which I still don't necessarily agree with. You know, we talked to other docs and they didn't necessarily agree with it, but it was the decision that was made to, for them, they decided to quit fighting. So when and did the clinical study come in to play? So that's, that's what happened, right? So they okay. said, oh, there's, you know, there's nothing else that we can do. We're going to stop the chemo. And I was like, well, can we at least keep the chemo on while I look for the other options that you choose not to look for, right? Because it wasn't even like, oh, we're going to look for stuff for you. I'm like, no, we're not done. And she's still happy and running around and looking great. Like we're not done. We're, we're not at that point yet. And so we actually switched hospitals. We went to Phoenix Children's Hospital after that and said, hey, what, what can we what can we find? And they were able to locate um, a few different trials that we reached out to. And I had already been reaching out to different ones as well. And we found a, a phase one trial for uh, high iphosphamide chemotherapy and monoclonal antibody to go along with it. That treatment was in CHL, uh, CHLA, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And so we went out. We met with the doc and they said, yeah, you know, you guys definitely would qualify for it if you want to give it a shot. And we knew at that point it was, I mean, you always, you're always hopeful that it's going to do something right. Um, but we knew that it was just to prolong life as much as we could and try to keep the quality of life for as long as we can keep the quality of life. And we would have as much fun as we could have in the time we left. I just want to set the stage for people who don't know that a phase one trial while there are still some phase zero trials, those are sort of pre-trials. A phase one trial is, is a really significant trial, and it's mainly for safety at that point to see if the patient can tolerate the regimen. It, they've already gone through animal studies, and now they're at this phase one trial. So to, to start a phase one trial is, you know, it can be, there's can be some big reward, but huge risk that, that come with that as well. How did she do? Um, during that clinical trial? Um, it was actually showing regression of the cancer, but because of exactly what you just said, it's really, it's really, uh, it's not for even efficacy, it's for dosing. Right. That's right. And, and to see what the body can tolerate or not tolerate, is this enough for the cancer to go away or is this too much and kill the person? And unfortunately for us, it was too much and it caused seizures, but at the same time, the cancer was regressing. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe a lower dose eventually would be something that would have been beneficial. Um, so, but for us, there was, there was two things, right? Like I, I, I strongly believe that it extended the time we would have the quality of time that we got to have with her. It put us in LA for four months and we rented a house in Echo Park and it was downtown LA <laughs> and it was an area that, you know, we weren't really, we didn't know anybody in and it really caused some real intentional family time, right? We, those last four months, we were just all together all of the time. We knew where we were. We knew what the end result was going to be. And we knew that that window was limited. And so we went to Disneyland a couple of times. We went to the beach as much as we could. We, we just played and loved and, and just spent as much time as we could together. And when you say family, who, who does that include? My wife and her, uh, her brother, Cole. So her brother, Cole, um, is four years older than she was when she was diagnosed at three. Um, that would have made him 
seven. And then when she passed, he was nine and she was almost six. What was that like for Cole? It was a lot of years for him, right? And, and again, because he was seven, I, I don't think there's this higher level of thinking yet, right? It's just like, okay, this is what we do. It's, I, I understand the situation. I know what's going on. And, and we, were, we never hid anything from him. But we, again, we never really had that, that final talk in towards we were, until we were in that phase one trial and we knew that this was the stage that we were in, that this was going to get us there. He did awesome, really, in regards to that. He's always a great big brother. He'd lay with her in bed, and they were best friends. So they were they were tied at the hip pretty much always. Um, luckily, it was in the COVID world, so he was able to be in the hospital with her every day. Like, I can't imagine trying to fight cancer right now and, and have our families more separated I know um, than they were during that time. But, you know, he was there with her playing. He'd be there with her in the, the child life room, you know, playing with the different toys and games. And he'd be there when she had bad days. Unfortunately, he would uh, he would also be the brunt of her roid rage when she <laughs> would get frustrated, right? Um, but he was just such a trooper. And a lot of people talk about how special of a kid he is. And, you know, his fundamental years, formative years, were spent in cancer hospitals. Like, and, and it wasn't just his sister he saw, you know? Like, we'd, yeah. we'd go into that room and there's eight or nine bald babies playing games and doing whatever, you know? And, uh, families crying and you know he watched a number of families in come into the fight and and exit before we exited the fight the same way it's definitely now the level of realism at an age that you definitely shouldn't have to be a part of that right but it was something that that he went through that uh, hopefully will make him stronger and you know we we, we talked through that a lot you know obviously counseling has been a big part of, of the after process just there was a lot of amazing people along the way and, and child life was always very awesome at focusing on both her and him and making sure that he was included in a lot of that as well. Children's Hospital in Los Angeles does a ton of pediatric cancer um, research and they're actually one of the one of the hospitals to do, do a lot of that and uh, to be able to be a part of that was definitely awesome for us in, in two ways, right? One that we were, we were obviously hoping that there would be the return from the investment of being a part of the study, but also we believe it extended our quality time with her and, and it led to maybe that next kid that runs in our situation won't, will know the right dosing for this medicine that might work or, you know, and we were completely open every single time we signed paperwork or went to a new hospital and got treatment here or did this. We always signed for them to have full, full open documents to all of our, all of our, uh, information so that they could put that towards the history, towards the research. So that right. when, you know, if we were number five, the number six would see what number five did. And hopefully number six would have a better outcome than number five. Right. And we're, we're always fully for the idea of this being the situation we're stuck with, but at the same time, we want to provide as much data as we can in hopes that that's beneficial for six, seven, and eight. And hopefully there aren't six, seven, and eight, but when they come, it'll be there. That was, incredibly generous of you. Do you mind if we talk about the after? Yeah, of course. I think most people know that there are five stages of grief and you don't necessarily experience all of them. And there's not necessarily a particular order, but I'm just going to rattle them off for people who don't know. Anger, depression, bargaining, denial, and acceptance. And I know for me personally, 
I'm not sure if I'm at acceptance yet, <laughs> but I guess to some degree I am, but I didn't experience anger until 17 years later. Oof. And when it came and in a stupid, stupid TV show on Netflix triggered it, but when it came, it came with such a force, like so much rage and anger and, and it, it just, it shocked me and it only lasted like less than 10 minutes, but I'm still shocked by it. When I think about like that rage where it just felt like it boiled up from within. So I'm just wondering, you know, if you and your wife went through any of those stages and what was that like for you? I think that when all that first happened and we first started talking to like some of the people at the hospital and a few different people following that in regards to, you know, the five stages of grief and they, you know, they, their best way of explaining was it was on a piece of paper and they were all kind of like in a circle, mm. you know, and they had them all listed and they yeah. said, you know, I just want you to understand, you're not going to go on a journey like this. You're not going to complete the circle. It's going to be like this. Yeah, that's exactly what it's right. Like. <laughs> Yeah. And, and maybe you're going to get to acceptance for a second, but then you're going to be back at anger and maybe you get to anger for a second and then you jump over here and, and it's just a constant fight to get yeah. through. Right. And, and I think my best way is explaining it. And, and my wife is similar in regards to, you know, the, the fight was hard. Um, losing Audrey was tough getting, but you're fighting for a goal and you're trying to save her life the entire time. Right. You're very focused on saving her life, yep. preservation of your daughter and getting through that. And, and we said in the very beginning of our cancer fight, like literally the first week we watched some video when we came in and it was, you know, the most important one I think we ever watched of like all the dumb things you get to like learn about. <laughs> and it was, it was talking about trying to make sure that you had a family on the other side of it, no matter what the outcome was. Right. So we're going to be a strong family of four or a strong family of three when we get out of this. And we're never going to focus on the fact that we have to be keep focus on the thing as a whole, right? It's not just one thing, it's all of it. And so going through that, we were, we were very focused on what we needed to do. We were very tight together. Um, we were lockstep in every decision. We made them together. And the hard part for me was after she passed. And the, the transition from treatment to hospice was really, really hard because I had to start to have the acceptance that we're very close to her dying. And I don't know what I look like on the other side of that. And so when she passed, I carried her body out to the van. And that's the last memory I had, right? And in that moment, sorry, a little emotional. Um, in that moment, I, I remember saying, how does tomorrow even happen? Right? Like, I don't see how tomorrow happens. And over time, Tomorrow happens. I want to say it was it was months before I can remember probably from that moment. From right now, like me trying to think back, like I remember that moment and it's probably months before I have another memory now where I think that stuff's probably just all locked away and that I was just in that pit of despair. We did the counseling. We did the things that we felt were, were helpful and were definitely helpful. Like counseling was very, you know, we all had different counselors. We all went to counselors to help us get through that. And I'm very thankful we did that because I don't know how much other than feeding, providing shelter, making sure Cole was alive, that we were able to help him in that moment. Cause we were just trying to stay alive ourselves, right? You, you were grieving, breathing, too. trying to, again, we're, we're falling into this pit after that. And then eventually hit the bottom of that pit 
you kind of start looking around and you say, you know, okay, well, here I am. Now what? You know, and I, I've said it before, like there's a, another analogy and, you know, people walk by the top and they're like, hey, why don't you come up here? And you're like, well, I'm going to sit down here for a while, you know, because I don't know that I can yet. And I don't know what that looks like. For me, I started reading books. I think my counselor gave me a book to read. She thought would be good. And I read it and I got a lot out of it. It was The Art of Not Giving an F, which was a very helpful book for me in that moment. And then I said, oh, that's a really good book. And then I started listening to different podcasts and um, videos on, on YouTube, like Tom Bilyeu and a few others who introduced me to all these other people that were really awesome people that had dealt with stuff and had written books themselves. So then I got into more and more books. And, and really, I try to read a book a week or listen to a book a week and just constantly trying to educate myself in how the brain works, because I needed to understand why I was feeling the way I was feeling and, and really like how to apply that to what I'm seeing and how to make myself better. And I've really just kind of dug in internally um, to better understand a lot of that stuff and started doing meditation, which I thought was always kind of woo-woo stuff before. <laughs> um, and, and now I understand the power of it, right? To be able to calm your brain. It's not about anything else other than just being able to sit in the moment and to come out of that, what I just had a minute ago, that, that deep emotion that's coming out, but being able to push that emotion back, get the headspace you need, and then be able to have rational thinking again. Because in that first two months, six months, there was a lot of moments where there wasn't any rational thinking. It was just, you know, there'd be moments when, you know, I was always happy to be strong for the family, but I'd go on a business trip because I'm still working and trying to be a functional person. And I'd travel and I'd be in a hotel room and that would be the moment it hit me. And I would, mm-hmm. I would uncontrollably lose my stuff because I was in a place that no one would see me and I could just dump my stuff. It was very uh, intense emotional moments where I was just getting that off, right? And so I think that there's, there's moments in there that's that. And, and, and then slowly but surely, you know, you have a good day and then you have a bad month and then you have two good days, right? And then, and then slowly but surely you have more good days than bad days at some point. And then for everybody, that time frame is different. And I think my wife and I have done a good job of letting each other have the time that we need to have to heal in our own times, knowing that she's not going to be better when I'm better. And I, I don't have to be better when she's better. And we each are going to have to go on our own journey to what that looks like after Audrey passed. And really, you know, what the future looks like for us. And, and for me, like I've taken that time to, to rebuild who I am to, to make those changes. There's again, a lot of those books that I read, the code for the extraordinary mind really was a book that I dove into to help me understand why I believe what I believe and the thing, the truths that I have for myself, rather than just believing what the world told me to believe. And it's really helped me shift that mindset. And it's also helped me look back and, and have that level of acceptance too. If we look back at all the things we tried, Audrey still died. Yeah. And it took a long time and I'm still struggling with it to, to say I didn't fail, right? I did everything humanly possible on this earth in the time that she lived with all of the medical treatments we had available on this earth in the time that she lived to try to prevent that outcome. And it was unobtainable, right? It, it, it was what it was because of the time, right? And maybe in five years, that would have been different. But for the, the era that she lived in, it wasn't possible. And so I have to be able to accept that there's nothing else that we could have done. But that's not the first feeling that you have that you have to get over. And, and the more I understand about, okay, you know, this is why I feel what I feel. It's the whole idea of, it's the primal instinct of a parent 
and want to preserve their children's life. And that's, that's natural. And those are the things and why we feel what we feel. And then slowly, you know, evolving that idea into other things to be able to, to deal with that stuff and to be able to talk about it like we are today in hopes that another family going through this right now who may see that outcome that we had to go through, not that far in the distant future, can understand that there is life. I didn't know what that was going to look like. Yeah. Um, you know, when you were talking about carrying Audrey to the van, I had that same experience. And I remember when I was signing the paperwork and I just felt like, like I'm signing off. Like this is like, I'm, I felt like I was giving away my child. I really did. And then the other thing in that moment that struck me was and and such a bizarre thing, but in all the movies and television, it's always a toe tag and it wasn't a toe tag. It was an anklet and they had her name wrong. But I just didn't have the energy to correct them because she always went by her middle name, not her first name. And of course, that's what it was. And, and that was, I just, I, I, I just felt like I was giving her away, you know, um, by releasing her body, if you will. It's final at that point. Yeah, I, Yes and no. I kept it together for the memorial service because she was in high school and all of her high school friends came. It was really the burial the next day that was very private by invitation only where I actually allowed myself to, to feel. Um, but that first year, I was so busy trying to stay busy to not feel mm-hmm. and also to convince everybody that I was okay, that the first year anniversary, I just I just cracked up. I was like, I was done. I mean, I just had kind of a meltdown. I'm wondering for you, first of all, I admire you for getting counseling, you, your wife and doing that for your son. I mean, that was probably a game changer. I I think that's a must have. Yeah. I think that's incredible. And a a lesson I hope people can learn from when, when did Audrey die? How, how long has it been? Uh, it'll be four years, um, September 29th this year. So sorry. How is your son doing today? He's good. He's actually really good. I think, I think we're finally, like I said, you know, trying to get our heads above water, um, and learning to live with it in a lot of ways. You know, I think the, going back to one of the things you said a minute ago in regards to, um, it coming back up in the anniversaries, every holiday is hard. Yeah. Every, you know, it's the, the lack of them not there. Um, every birthday for her, every November 14th is, is a difficult day for us, yeah. you know? Um, and then of course the anniversary of her passing is another difficult day. So there's just, there's so many triggers when it comes to loss. Um, just like you had that trigger on that TV show that, you know, took back some of that PTSD to the feelings that came out. And, you know, the other thing you said, which is, you know, you, you, you kept busy and the, the more I like, I, I'm starting to deal with grief more with people that are going through grief, whether it's through losing their husband or losing their grandparent or losing, you know, different people along the way. Cause I'm starting to have these conversations with people. Cause I feel like I can, because I've felt it. I've been through it. I've had the walk, you know, you and I can talk to a family that has lost a, a daughter or a, a, you know, a brother or sister to cancer. That was a kid where other people, they, they can't have the level of, credibility that we have and they just honestly can't say I understand what you're going through because they can't it's a whole different level of 
hurt. And, and it's, it's, it's not a different level. It's, it's a unique hurt, I believe, mm-hmm. that is probably the right way of saying it. And, and I think that, you know, going back to the whole idea of my studying of psychology is that one of the things they say is that things we don't deal with get packed away in our subconscious and our subconscious continues to bring it back for us to choose to deal with it or pack it back for as long as we choose not to deal with it. But at some point, if we deal with it, we don't have to keep dealing with it anymore, right? Or, or we deal with it on a different level. Yeah. And so now we've dealt with it. We can pack that away. It's a memory. It's a part of us. It's a hurt we have in our hearts, but it's dealt with. And, and the next time it comes up, we, we already know how to deal with it, right? So that, that rage has <laughs> been going back and forth for a while and it finally got dealt with. Yeah. And it was able to go away or, or at least be livable with now. And so I think that that was a lot of, you know, going through those first years was getting through some of that stuff. And you know, I think that one of the, one of the biggest moments of my, probably the first moment I remember from the time that, you know, we, we put her to rest to getting our heads kind of above water was we'd gone to, we got to an Eric church concert, a uh, country music singer guy. And I felt like I should be having a good time. I felt like I was in a place that I generally would be happy but I wasn't giving myself permission mm. to be happy yet. Right. Like I, I can't be happy. So that's my daughter. Like I'm, I'm not there yet. And will I ever be? And then one night, one of our neighbors invited us over to their house and it's often a, it was kind of a place where a lot of the neighbors kind of got together on his back porch and we're all having a beer and sitting around and talking and laughing. And my son and one of their neighbor's sons are, are back on the swing. And I hear the squeaking of the swing going back and forth and the laughter on the table and the weather's perfect. It's, it's one of those perfect moments. And, and I allowed myself to have joy again in that moment. And it's the first time that I remember having joy again. That moment will always be special. And every time I hear those swing, swing with the kids that live over there now, it's, it brings back that moment and the reminder that it's okay to be okay again. Yeah. And then just kind of built on, the, built on everything from that moment forward. I remember that moment too. I, um... I went on a trip and I was not someone who traveled a lot back then. And I went on a trip to visit a friend in San Francisco. And I had only been in San Francisco one time before and barely like half a day or whatever. And this was the first time. And the trip was solely for me. And I went for five days and I have this photo. I just hold on to and It's really faded and old. But, and I'm in this boat and not even, you know, not a yacht, like a little boat that took us out on the water under the golden gate bridge and stuff. And it was the first time I remember being happy without faking it. It, That that I I can tell that I'm genuinely happy. And it was just that little window of time Mm -hmm. where I knew I can be happy again. You know, it's, it is, I am capable of being happy. It's not all the time. In that same trip, I almost threw myself off the roof. So it was really all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because you found (laughs) happiness in that moment didn't mean it was all happy. Exactly, exactly. Um, I am in the very, very early stages of working on my second book. And and it's about this. It's about the grief I experienced. I do a lot of research before I actually start writing. and, And that includes looking at photos and emails and all that fun stuff that we have. And I am finding that it is so difficult to go back because I lost a lot of friends. Mm. I was one of very few people I knew who was raising a child. Most people 
in their late twenties, right. none of my friends had children yet. And even some, some other people in my life who did just told me after a year, I should snap out of it or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm just curious, did you have any, any friends or family who made you feel worse and not better? I don't think anyone intentionally made you feel worse. Yeah, or made yeah. Feel worse. Yeah, I didn't um, say intentionally. But, but, I, but I think that uh, they don't know what to say a lot yeah. of times. And sometimes they just say the wrong stuff. And you're so triggered um, that it's everything you can just to not throttle them for something that they said completely unintentionally. You know, like someone saying, you know, I just lost my dog. So I totally understand how you feel right now. Yeah, you know, see, how just, do you not punch that person? It's difficult. It's difficult. Right? I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, yeah. So so it's I think I think those types of things are hard. And and that's something I've gotten better at. Uh and, and again, saying that my pain is worse than your pain is isn't necessarily accurate. I think it's it's my pain is more unique to the situation than your pain ever could be. So you can't really understand my unique pain right. as much as somebody that has gone through it like I have. Yeah. And even there's going to be different, but it's going to be more similar to mine. And so you have no idea. I, I had an issue with that. And everyone actually has an issues with that. Right. So, you know, ours was fairly recent. So our battle through cancer was on social media. Well, like during social media. Right. So I got connected with other families going through cancer, even mm-hmm. rather Marshall coma groups, wow. right. Of other parents in the fight, the same time we're in the fight and we're messaging back and forth. Have you seen Dr. Wexler? Have you seen Dr. Harrison? Are you in um, CHOPS, you know, Jones Hospital of Philadelphia? Are you in? Yeah, exactly. You know, so we know all these hospitals, we know all these treatments, and we're all throwing this stuff back and forth, you know, collaboratively thinking, like, how do we save our children? And that was awesome. But I'm also in another group, which is um, for Rabdo Kids, which is Starts with, it's, it's F something Rabdo Kids or something, right? And it's dads, it's all dads, just dads. And there's some, some rough stuff being talked about in there and we're allowed to use profanity and we, we choose to use profanity in a lot of ways for most things we talk about, you know, and at regards to cancer and the fight. And sometimes you just need to go off on something and there's nobody that's going to understand like a dad that's as a kid fighting rapto. We've, we've formed some unbelievable relationships in, in some of those, like in my dad group, we still, I'm still in that group. We still occasionally post. I still see dad's talking about stuff. Um, I've, I've talked to, to dads after they've lost their kids from Rando and, and had those discussions with them, just help them to understand what's going to look like and what they're going to go through and, and to not fear those feelings and to not fear that darkness that's going to come. Yeah. And, um, and, and so again, me trying to understand all those things, it was on social media and understanding and thinking through that. And I was still frustrated. Right. And I saw my point to that is that other people experience exactly what you're asking about right now, which is where did everybody go? Mm-hmm. Right. And in and, and some cases, where did my husband go? Where did my wife go? Because they didn't know how to deal with it. So they just bailed. But oh, when, yeah. <laughs> when you look at that situation, like that's a whole nother level of that problem. But like as a whole in um, thinking fast and slow, this psychologist writes about um, this study that he did. And it was, it was the, one of the first moments in a book that really stuck out at me. And I was like, yes, I needed to hear that. And, you know, I can still remember I'm mowing the lawn, listening to my audio book when I hear this. Right. And he talks about this study he did where he had six or eight people in different booths 
and he has them all on the same audio so they can all hear each other and he plants one person as the actor mm -hmm. and the actor acts like he has a seizure and the goal of the study is to find out how many of these other people that can't see him but you can hear him but know where he's at will go help him whoa and, that's so twisted okay <laughs> it kind of is but at the same time it's like exactly what happens you're you're in a bad situation and 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 the answer was sometimes none but generally it's one or two mm -hmm. and then they ask the rest of the people that don't go help them why wouldn't you go help the guy and, and you have to understand we're humans right so we're, we're actually very similar so it's it's like okay so if you take this average and you look at it all people are the same this is why they probably don't do it and it's that they assumed they were taken care of or they assumed they didn't have the skills to help them. So they would figure they would stay out of the way. And, and, mm -hmm. and so all of this based on this assumption that there's nothing I can provide. So I'm not going to do anything. And, and I think that our friends and our family often had that same approach and that, you know, and, and a lot of them were there. So, you know, and those that were know who they are and the ones that didn't, I think they didn't do it in like, Oh, I'm going to do all that. Is that like either I can't deal with that, like I don't know what I would even say to this guy right now, so I'm just gonna say anything, or I'm I'm assuming that they're already taken care of, they're too busy, they need their family time. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna even ask if they need anything, and they just step away. Like people just disappear. People you would be shocked disappear, disappear. That only applies more after they pass. Oh, oh, because they're there for the fight when she's there. Yes. But then after, yeah, and they're like, oh, we're there, and then and they're gone, oh. and then then gone. it's you're in the bottom of the pit of despair and no one's even trying to look down and call on you and say, Hey, how you doing down there? Cause they go back to life. The fight is over. You're good. It's a very common problem that if anybody gets anything from this today, um, knows, Hey, if you have somebody going through that in, in any level of stuff, whether it's your mom losing her husband and you saying, Hey, how you guys doing? Or your friend losing his grandma, and in the whatever part that they're going through in that grief, like, how you doing? Like, don't walk away from the situation. Make sure that those people aren't alone. Even if you yeah. assume they're not, just ask. Yeah. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of Audrey's cancer journey? Uh, that's a hard question. I, I think if there was one thing, it would be just. We eventually came to the understanding to make the most of every moment we could. But I think in the beginning, we were so focused on getting into it and fighting it that it took us a while to figure out, okay, this isn't going to work out. Our time is limited. And you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't in this situation, right? Like, you don't want to think, okay, it's not going to work out. So you're not going to change where you're thinking. But if, you, if we were doing anything, it was just to, to know that to spend as much time together as you can in the good moments to dive in and, and, and have that quality time. And, you know, in hopes that people would do this without having that situation. Right. And to make sure that you're spending the quality time with your family as you can, rather than just letting it slip away. Um, but I think that would be the one. If I, was the I, I love that. And totally agree. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U S what would it be and why? More research on pediatric cancer. Amen. Only 4% of the funding that goes to cancer research in the United States goes to kids. It, it goes to extending an older person's adult life by five years, right? It, the yeah. efficacies that they give us for our children that get diagnosed with cancer is a survivability for five years. 
it's not a survivability for life. It's just, we're going to extend your kid's life by five years by 80% chance. So what happens after five years? What happens when they actually get through all of this treatment and they have to deal with the after effects their entire lives because of the lack of research we're doing in treating these kids? Again, Audrey's chemos were 30-year-old, 40-year-old chemos that we're still paying $40,000 of treatment for. And they're poisoning her body. Yeah. Right? And, And so all of the kids that do get through are scarred for life if they make it through. And, and we're not doing enough and we're not doing it quick enough. It, it's a different level of research that needs to be done because you're looking at long-term prognosis, not just trying to get an extra Christmas. Oh God, that was so well said. I have loved having you. I ready to switch gears and do the Thriver rapid fire questions. I'm ready. A little fun. <laughs> beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Did you go to the beach a lot when you guys went to? Oh, you said that you did go. Yeah, we, awesome. we did. But beach is definitely our happy place for a, our family. Uh, last year, because of COVID, we tried to take a vacation. We rented an RV. We drove from Arizona all the way to Yellowstone and back. And though it was an amazing time with the family in 13, no, 16 days, we did 3,300 miles. And we saw every mountain you could see between here and uh, Montana. <laughs> I am positive that if I was on the ocean, I would have had even more fun. So I, I think at <laughs> that it. moment we realized we were beach people. Okay. On that note, Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Not a music person. Nothing? Nothing? Nada? Nope. Okay. So when I make the playlist, I'm just going to have like a blank track for you. Is that <laughs> what you're telling me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's like, that's funny. <laughs> what is one Audio, word? Audiobook. That's, oh, all audiobook. I, that's all I listen to. Audiobook. Okay. Love it. What is one word that best describes you? Constantly learning, two words. And before you die, what's the last song you want to hear? Oh, you're not a music person. What's the last audio book you want to listen to? Oh, there that would we be go. hard too, right? That would be <laughs> difficult as well. That's a whole different way of thinking. Um, <laughs> that's one I don't know. Okay. But I, I will say though, my my grandpa and my dad both had um, Friends in Low Places by Garth Brooks played. Maybe I would pick that one. <laughs> really? I love mm-hmm. it. <laughs> What's the last meal you want to eat? Steak. I like it. I just want to eat everything that I can't eat right now. So. Oh, that's a solid one. Maybe yeah. shrimp. Because yeah. if I'm going to die, somebody might as well kill me. Yeah. Are you allergic to shrimp? Oh, man. That's, that sucks. Uh, the last person or people you want to see? My wife and my son. And the last words you will speak? Good life. And aside from cancer, you, what is one resource you recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? Uh, Truth 365. Uh, it's pretty amazing in their um, awareness that they're bringing the cancer research. Okay. Um, and then Children's Cancer Network in Arizona specifically was one of the foundations that just loved on our family through the fight. All right. We'll put those links in the show notes and the workshop. What were those books? I know you mentioned uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. What was the other book you mentioned? I want to make sure we add that as well. Code for the Extraordinary Mind. Yeah. But then there's there's one that's very special, which is probably my favorite book, which is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And the the, the mm-hmm. one line that I take out, like every book, right? Like you read it and you hear the things you need to hear in that moment when you read it. You read it 10 times and you're going to get the thing you need in that moment. And, and Victor Frankl's, I'll paraphrase, but he talks about suffering ceases to be suffering when it finds meaning. 
the whole reason why we're talking today is because my meaning is is trying to kill my suffering and then to talk about our story, right? So that the other people don't have to have go into that blindly. Have you read When Bad Things Happen to Good People? I don't think so. I think the reason I took to it so much and didn't get upset or anything, he dedicated it to his son, who I believe died when he was 12 from leukemia. And I was like, okay, he gets it. He totally gets it from a really personal level. So it's not just, I'm a rabbi and here's my advice. It's, I've been there. It's happened. As long as it doesn't say all things happen for a reason. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Let's see. There's that one. And, and there's, um, she's in a good place. She's no longer in pain. Oh my God. I have like a laundry list of things. You should not That's say. Awesome. If people want to get in touch with you, what would be the best way? Probably just Facebook, Ira Hughes on Facebook. And then, um, finding my story is my kind of other page where the reason I'm starting to do podcasts is I want, I would love to public speak uh, and talk about the stuff we went through, as well as some points to life that I'm starting to learn along the way through this journey of, of life after, and really keeping her story out there, just like you're doing. Oh, Ira, I don't know how I got through this without crying. I teared up so many times. Well. I ever did not. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story and, and really Audrey's story too. I guess the one other place that you could point to is uh, when we were going through the fight, I would regularly write on AudreyNoel.com and it was a blog along with pictures along the way. And it's A-U-D-R-E-Y-N-O-E-L-L-E.com. And that's up there for from the very beginning until she, until she passed. Oh God, we're definitely going to post that. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It was fun spending time. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.